Welcome to Hold the Gravy, episode 27. My name is Hunter Romero. Thank you so much for joining me today. Special thanks to Delcom Seafood and Farmer's Market for hosting Hold the Gravy. We got a September market coming up on Saturday, September 2nd, over at Bayou Carlin Cove in Delcom, Louisiana. Make sure you're checking that out. Make sure you're keeping up with the forums online and getting your fresh shrimp whenever they come in. And they're always posting when the fishermen are about to head to the dock with how many shrimp they have and what size shrimp and how much they're going to cost and all the good stuff. So get your ice chest cleaned up, get in line at the dock and head over and fill that thing. Get you some fresh Gulf shrimp. If you don't live in the South or in Louisiana, you can still visit LouisianaDirectSeafood.com and order any fresh Gulf seafood and get it shipped straight to your doorstep. Talk about a service. On today's episode, we got part one of a remarkable interview. I got to sit down and hear the story from a man by the name of George Romero. Yes, this is going to be part one of his life-changing story, and I'll just leave it at that and really let you hear all the details from him this man was fishing earlier this month for some shrimp out in the gulf and his boat was capsized and he was now three days in the water and floated back to shore and has all of the incredible details to share with you on this episode Please stay tuned for episode 28 that will have part two of this interview. Thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Hunter Romero. This is Hold the Gravy Podcast. He works for Louisiana Sportsman and he works for the Iberian. Okay. I did a long interview with him at home. And uh, he, he wrote a nice piece. It was something. I'm going to have to check that one out. I, I haven't, yeah. I haven't yeah. gotten it to was, that uh, one yet. It was published in the Daily Iberian last weekend. And uh, it came out in the last edition of the uh, Louisiana Sportsman, I believe. Okay. Well, good deal. Yeah, he, he probably has the longest uh, uh, post, you know. And then I talk to several news reporters and whatnot right and I, and I assume you know this such a story like you kind of been through you know I think uh, yeah uh, to put it kind of uh, uh, the how, how do you how well, let's see how could I put that to take some of the sensationalism or whatever you know out of it yeah to the average person I guess that looks like you know, a really, really horrible ordeal. And really, I mean, it wasn't nothing nice. Not nothing I would want to do again for fun. <laughs> but it's, I guess I'm more accustomed to something like this or used to those kind of conditions because uh, I lived a pretty rough life when I was younger. I mean, my idea of a... Uh, uh, extra second job when I was working at the plant I'd get off about three o'clock in the afternoon get home about 3 30 then I'd go help my brother I'd work five days a week so Saturday and Sunday was all day uh I'd spend the whole 
from three o'clock, I'd jump in my boat, run out there, finish helping him run trap lines in the marsh. You know, foot and hip boots or whatever, slogging through the mud for miles and miles. It was something I did all the time. Right. So, I mean, in a way, now that I think about it, uh, mentally, I was more prepared than a lot of people. Yeah, and, and those uh, were some some jobs that you did at a younger age right. to almost you know, prepare went you for duck hunting every day, every weekend I could and everything else. So I spent a lot of time in the marshes and in the bayous and I used to gill net for a living. So you were, you were prepared for a, a, a deeper survival sense than, than the average person probably. Sure. Yes. And of course and, I'm not getting any younger, <laughs> but, and then I find out now that I'm a diabetic so yeah, that 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 all had a part to play in it too. Right. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I was totally wore out by that. Uh, well, two and a half days, whatever it was. And I uh, I can imagine you're still not even that, recovered. Oh no, oh no. I thought I was feeling all right and this and that. And I got out in the sun about three days ago, and I had to go to my son's do some paperwork, and then go. I wanted to go look at this other boat somebody told me about and this, that, and the other. And I stayed out and about for quite a while. And, man, it just hit me. I was like, wow. <laughs> that sun beats me up. Not to mention we're under one of the hottest times right. it's been. Right. One of the hottest Augusts. Very and, much. And dry. and you know, Very much. That's, lots to that's, say about the weather in the South That's right part now. of why uh, when my boys and a few friends kept on after me and said, you know, you need to go to the hospital, get yourself checked out. You need to go get checked out. I said, well, you know what? Thought about it a while. I said, yeah, maybe I'd better. And this was after the incident? This was after, yeah, after I was rescued uh, uh, later on uh, that afternoon, late, um, or well, no, about middle of the afternoon, I guess. Uh, my son loaded me up. We took off, and I went to uh, uh, Kaplan. Abram, uh, uh, yeah, the Oshna's at, in Kaplan right there. Right. And, uh, yeah, they checked me out and said, yeah, you're pretty dehydrated, Mr. Romero. And I took some blood samples and this and that, make sure. My two, well, my three concerns were, was whether or not I was dehydrated to the point, didn't realize it, which happens, uh, to the point that I was damaging my kidneys or my liver especially my kidneys because uh, I have a younger brother and he's only got like 30-something, 40% of one kidney left. They removed one and it's a long, ongoing story. So I said, man, I don't want to be like my younger brother. You know, he's, he's in a bad way. Uh, so I wanted to go get checked out for that. And also, I started thinking, another buddy of mine, my neighbor that had his boat he docked right up against me uh he had problems with that flesh-eating bacteria uh last year or about a year and a half ago right and it did put him out of commission for quite a while thought and they were gonna that be, was in the gulf right yeah yeah well uh he had the same thing he had a cut and it got this flesh-eating bacteria in it and was tearing him up it was bad off wow yeah. While well, it's, was, it's sure a dangerous job. While he was job, at the hospital, I mean, he had uh, 
Matter of fact, he had some stuff broken in his rigging, and I said, man, I said, when Timmy gets back, he he's not going to be able to climb up there in the rigging and do no welding or nothing. And I was doing some welding on my boat in the rigging. I told the person that was helping me, I said, hey, grab the water hose and just wet everything down and keep wetting it down, everything but me. <laughs> so I'm going to climb up there and tack that up for him. And uh, I did. He was real happy. Man, he said, that's something else. I said, well, I said, no more than what you do for me, and I, I know it, you know. It's just people helping people. It seems like the shrimping community is, is very kind of We got to kind of help each other because uh, it, it's, a, it's a big struggle right now. Why is that? Well, uh, you know, we, they just had the shrimp festival and all that. Really, I can't see what they're celebrating. Because when I was a teenager and you crossed the bridge down here, when you looked south, it looked like a, a forest of pine trees that all these outriggers sticking up. Because it was thousands of them. And that was while the, se the season was in progress and everyone was fishing. That was just the boats that were in transit coming in to offload, to reload with ice and whatnot and go back out. Thousands and thousands of outriggers. Now... It's nothing. It's no more boats. But they don't want us here. <laughs> In Delcom specific. Exactly. They took away the public dock that used to be ours, and now they got yachts parked there. And, you know, things like this. Back then, we had three ice plants, uh, about five or six uh, shops that unloaded boats. We had an oyster uh, uh, processing shop. I mean, it was incredible. Every, you know, every inch of the bayou was being utilized, and it was all for the fishing industry. Uh, now, there's none. What ice plant? There is no ice plant. What shop are you going to unload your shrimp to if it's small shrimp that you can't sell to the public? There is none. And all of the other places, Intracoastal City, uh, Sippermore Point, Morgan City, Cameron, they're all going down the same way. It's less and less facilities. There's less and less shrimp boats because it's harder and harder to make a dollar. Is you know? the demand different? Is that creating like? Uh, yeah, the, the, the demand for shrimp, I would imagine, is still there. But they get more dependable and cheaper supply using imports and it's it, it's more dependable us it's it's seasonal and it's wild caught uh i might go out this time and catch you know five thousand pounds of huge beautiful shrimp right come in sell those and when i go back i might not be able to catch two thousand pounds of little bitty shrimp you know it's just so inconsistent. It's, it's, it's so inconsistent, and it, it all depends on there's so many factors involved. You know, from season to season, it's total changes. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, what part of the season I should get a hold of you for this size or that size or the bigger ones or the smaller ones or the medium ones or what? I don't know. Right. I've been doing this for years and years, and I can't tell you for sure. Right. You're just rolling with the punches. That, yeah. You know. I'm, I'm just taking whatever God gives us. Of course. And do you think Whatever this I can find. And, and, and it's not necessarily not out there. It's just 
I had gotten to the point where I wasn't running around the whole state coastline. It's just too much with the price of fuel and all that. I had myself limited to about Oshtabaya, Trafalaya River, westward, all the way to about 10 miles, 10, 15 miles past freshwater bayou to the west. From there and all the way inshore, you know, as far as you can inshore fish, that was my limits. If I kind of made the round of that and didn't find anything, well, it's time to go back to the dock and do a few repairs and take a break. It's, it, anywhere that is just too far. Yeah, and like too you said. Too much distance, and I mean, if I couldn't find nothing worth fishing in that amount of area, what's the use of going all the way to Homa and Grand Isle and all of that? I just pretty much stayed in the backyard here, like I called it, and that was that. Uh, see that this fateful trip I had, I went out there on a hunch. A friend of mine had went a week and a half before, and he had a pretty good little trip. I mean, not nothing to brag about, but he made a few dollars. So I said, well, I'm going to go out and kind of work the same area. But I started a little bit east of him instead of going where he went. I went a little bit east, south of Marshall Island and whatever. Worked there for a day and a night. And the shrimp was, they had some nice ones in there, but it wasn't enough. So I turned my way westward, and that's when it really started blowing out the south pretty hard. Well, south, southwest. Working my way that way, so I put them in the water to see. And uh, pushed in that rough stuff most of the night. And when I had finally convinced myself that it just wasn't worth it, it was, I was taking too much of a chance, well, that's when I sunk. I should have made that decision about a half hour before or so and, and quit, but uh, that's my bad. Pushed my luck a little too far. What exactly happened to the boat to make the sink start? Uh, well, I was going on an angle into the waves and the sea and the wind and uh, because my I have two radars and I had one of them on and I kept working with it and tuning it but the way the waves were and the wind was blowing and the boat rocking it was giving me a lot of clutter and I could see the pilings of the channel on it but if I tuned it up a little tighter where the the clutter and the, the, the uh, all these other extraneous waves wouldn't show up. Then the pilings weren't showing up as regular and as specific as I wanted. So I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to go by the radar tonight. I'm going to go put my main focus on the plotter. And I'm going to make the round of all the pilings and go a little bit offshore of them. As soon as I get past them, I'm gonna turn it to the north, go up on top of what they call the mud hole, where it, it'd be a lot calmer, because it, it goes in and there's like a shelf. It goes from 18 to 20 foot, up to about 15 foot, then there's a quick rise up to about eight or nine foot. And from there to the bank, it's like a big, shallow uh, uh, mud flat. <laughs> right. 
And uh, but it's, I usually push on top of there because I had my nets set light to be able to fish on that type of bottom. So that was my plan. I was going to work my way on top of the mud hole and then pick up everything, wash everything back. I was getting tired. I said, that'll be it. I'll shut down. Maybe the uh, window settle down a little bit or something. And I'll start again. Well, that's what I was doing. And when I went to, when I passed up the pilings and the channel and I turned back towards land, uh, one of the frames bit into the bottom and bogged down. And the way the current was running, it pushed the boat on top of the frame and knocked the hole in the side. And between 30 seconds to one minute, I was on the bottom. Wow. Yeah. It happened fast, real quick. And what time of the this was about that? three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> in the dark, about five six foot seas. And you have nobody on board with nope, you, just me. And and what made you start fishing by yourself? I mean, well, it's it's kind of hard to find an experienced, dependable person who uh, wants to work for basically nothing. Because, I guess that's the obvious reasons, yeah. I mean, it, the, the way shrimping's been for several years now and it's been getting worse and worse uh, is you make a trip, yeah, you might make good money, you know, in a few days this trip, but the next two or three, you might break out even or come out in the hole. And when you're a deckhand working on a percentage. Yeah, it seems I mean, like a big gamble. Uh, uh, 25% of nothing is nothing. <laughs> I mean, basically, that's, that's how it is. And then on the other hand, I can't guarantee someone a paycheck because I might come out in the hole myself. Right. It's, it seems like a gamble for you for the decade. Big hand, gamble. You know. uh, that was, uh, this trip I was making wasn't too, too bad. Uh, of course, the fuel bill nothing nice but uh and hasn't been in a few no, years no oh uh, well uh yeah <laughs> it's been a few years but do you think that this year's shrimping season has been successful compared to maybe the, uh, the last decade shrimp wise and the boats that are able to go and the boats that are able to procure ice when you can uh yeah it's it's been all right you know uh we're selling them for a little cheaper when we ought to be a little higher just because the shops shut down and a lot of the boats that were still selling majority to the shops and you know they'd sell some on the side to people that had you know asked for them and whatnot had sure. orders sure yeah but the majority of their shrimp they would sell at the shop well those were forced whether they wanted to or not to sell them totally retail by hand that put a big uh, extra surplus of shrimp to try to sell at the little uh, uh, retail docks that we got here that they set up for us. So it was a lot more competition. Probably right. a time and a half what we had, say, last year or the prior year, previous, you know. Uh, so that made it a little rougher. But thank God, at least the shrimp were plentiful. Right, I mean the weather had, had uh, something to do with it. Even Bay, you know, the opening wasn't that great. Uh, they opened it a little too early, in my opinion. But 
I mean, it, it doesn't go just by what's here. That's got to do with other areas too. Sure. And uh, what they have in the bay would have been fine to bring to the shrimp shop. Good 40, 50, 50, 60 size shrimp. That just doesn't sell well by hand. The average consumer doesn't want a couple of hundred pounds of that to put in their freezer. You might sell some, someone that's fixing a gumbo up that night and doesn't mind sitting there an extra hour or two peeling those little things. But on average, nobody wants those besides the shops. Right. And uh, that's what Vermilion Bay was full of. So that's why I didn't even check in the bay. Season opened and I never went, not day one, in the bay. Never tried, never put a net down. I knew what they were catching. So I just went straight out in the Gulf. Wasn't there a season, uh, preseason, you can't go into open waters, is that right? Uh, no, you can't go into inshore waters. Inshore waters. Yeah. Which would be Vermilion Bay. Vermilion Bay, West Coast Blanche, East Coast Blanche, White Lake. Uh, all of that is inshore waters. Gotcha. You have to stay in the Gulf from the beach outward. Gotcha. Okay. And also in the Gulf, which I never really wanted one, but uh, if you want to go further than what they call a three-mile line, you have to have a federal permit. Hmm. And I didn't possess a federal permit, so I was always inside of three miles. Right. That's kind of what you've labeled as your backyard. Yep. That's about all I fished. And you had your you had the those inshore, the inshore bays out to three miles and about Oyster Bayou area, so Chapalaya River to the east and about 10, 15 miles past Freshwater Bayou to the west. And if I didn't find nothing in those areas, somewhere in that area, I just turn around and go home. Right. Now, did you learn those routes from? Uh, oh, that's just been years. Uh, the areas I would cover was not even nearly that large when I had my first old boat. <laughs> it was an old rotten, rusty steel hull I had, but it was cheap. And I kept patching it and patching it and making a go of it with that. What, what year did you have that boat from, to and from? Oh, I, I, I'd be lying if I tried to tell you. Uh, I know I had it for good about 10 years, I guess, before I got this one. Well, I'd say it was 10 years prior to, uh, Hurricane Ike. Okay. Uh, yeah, there was Rita and Ike. Hurricane Ike is when I got the current boat that I had. When hmm. I took possession of the Our Pride, I actually, uh, helped a friend of mine pump it out and save it for that hurricane because it had got washed up on land and sunken on land. It, it had a hole knocked in it from the tie-off uh, piling that it bumped into and it sunk it on land. So I got in contact with uh, Ricky Broussard and told him about it. It was his boat. And uh, he finally made, was able to get, get down to Delcom. And uh, I seen when he was kind of giving up on it and I went and meet him and 
one thing led to another and I ended up pumping it out and getting it plugged up enough for them and we pushed it back out into the bayou before the water receded. Wow. And yeah, I mean, timely manner when a, when a hurricane's coming and, and you got you got some work to do to right. make sure your, your boat survives. And the problem was we had to make sure we had it in a good, secure spot where it couldn't climb on land again. And I had to get it pretty watertight, which is hard with an old wooden boat. I could imagine. Uh, had little leaks here and there. Well, we couldn't have too much of that because we only had a few gallons of gas left for the gasoline pump that he brought. And you have no other systems that work. No generator, no engine, no more batteries. So hence, no electric bilge pumps that were operational or none. So based on just pumping it out, you know, once a day for half an hour or so, you know, 20 minutes, um, I figured he had several days, but, you know, only running that gasoline pump once a day, you know, at the most, uh, maybe every other day. So that meant we had to have the boat pretty watertight. So I spent the whole night after I patched up the hole and we got it pumped out, just climbing up a ladder and crawling on my hands and knees in the bilge back and forth and spotting out every little leak that they, that they had in the boat, tracing it down to the outside of the hull or whatnot and spotting them from the inside and then climbing out the hull going over the side down the ladder back into that old nasty water and finding all the leaks one by one and plugging them with cotton wow and uh, once i had it there and it wasn't barely leaking anything at all i said well good i said got the leak slowed down enough to where she should stay afloat on her own with no pumps for a couple of days at a time said, now it's time to pull her around in the bayou. And uh, I said, yeah, because I, I could feel it. The way the water was just starting to fall, the bottom of the boat was just about to start dragging land again. I said, yeah, it's time we push her back out into the channel again. So we did, and I told them, pull down some ropes and tie a couple together. They got to be able to reach that tree over there. <laughs> Because where the boat was tied at, they didn't have any tall pilings to keep it off of land. That's why it sunk in the first place. Uh, I said, we're going we're gonna to get this boat all the way into the shipyard slip. I said, there they got three tall pilings that are sticking out of the water. That'll keep it in the slip and not allow it to go on land. He said, well, how are we going to get there? I said, very simple. Give me the end of that. Feed me some slack. I'm going to take off swimming. So I grabbed the end of the rope in my teeth, and I swam to the tree, tied it off on the tree. Then I told Ricky and his buddy, pull yourselves to me, and then they'd pull themselves to me, and then I'd swim around the corner, swam into the slip, tied it off on the pilot, and they pulled the boat in there. We tied it up, and that was it. But all total, I started that right at dark, and finished at daylight. Wow. Paddled back to my old iron boat, climbed on it, and fell asleep for about 16 hours. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like to me that these were, you know, without you even knowing at the time that you were training for what you had to, <laughs> yeah, you know. So 
I've always been kind of stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't that's consider a, that stupidity, that, 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 man. That's, that's another thing. That's uh, bravery, you well, know. My, my sons told me that. They said, no, 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 they had to correct me quick. I don't know why, but I was always under the impression I might have read something somewhere or something back in the day. But I was always under the impression that uh, the average person could survive anywhere from like five to seven days or something like that without water mm-hmm. before, you know, your organs start shutting sure, down yeah. and you start having all kind of real severe problems. Well, both of my sons, were, both uh, uh, my sons that were here, uh, one that's in Boston, uh, both shot me down real quick. Oh no, daddy, uh-uh, rule of threes, rule of threes. Rule of threes, what are y'all talking about? They said, Look, been through survival training. You have three minutes without air or three minutes in frigid water um, that you a person can survive. You have three days without water to drink or three weeks without food. Hmm. You can survive normally, average person, and be without too much damage. Sure, I said, Well. So I'm glad I didn't know that. If yeah. I'd have known I was getting that close to the end, I might have panicked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was always under the impression, well, I went down at 3 in the morning, uh, Thursday morning. This is Friday. you know. Oh, this is Saturday morning. Well, I, I got till like Sunday, Monday-ish, you know, before things get critical here. I didn't know I only had a half a day left. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, sometimes it is good to be a little bit ignorant. Yeah, you don't want your mind playing tricks on you. Right. You know, uh, you can see how far your body is is oh willing yeah. to go. Was, you know, I was tired. You know, it. it but how mentally I, tough were definitely, you? You know, I definitely knew that uh, I couldn't just say, "Oh well, yeah, I could swim across this cut right here to the next reef." It was like, yeah, even with a life jacket, let me look at this for a little while. Make sure I wasn't trying to swim against the current or something like this and go exhaust myself. Sure. It didn't pay. I just soon just sit in the mud right here up to my neck and just wait. So let me get, um, I guess, uh, <coughs> let, me, let me build the, the scene here for, for our listeners. It's, it's 3 a.m. on Thursday. Right. And you're now in the water. Basically, yeah. How well, far I started you? out in the rigging. Hanging on like a seagull, right? Watching my boat come apart. And how far are you from the about shore? Three miles. Three miles. And you know which three miles. You know exactly. It's I mean, it's pitch black outside. Oh you, yeah. You know exactly which direction you need to head. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. But uh, basically, it was in the hand of God because uh, the boat went down and she was upright, straight up and down for a while, and uh, she kept crow hopping and bouncing on the bottom. The waves would lift her up, and she'd just jump a little forward and smack down on the bottom again. And this, because you had a lot of buoyancy in there, mm-hmm. the boat was built with these huge, humongously huge fuel tanks in it, uh, 1,500 gallons, which I very rarely, if ever, filled them up more than a couple of times. I usually just tried to leave the dock with anywhere from five to 700 gallons. 
which is a third to half right. capacity. So these things were like huge balloons inside the hull because I was below the normal. I probably had 300 and something gallons aboard. I took right. 300 when I left, but I had burnt probably 150 and they probably had 200 in it or something like that. So, I mean, I might've had like 400 gallons aboard at the most. And these tanks so were almost these keeping tanks it. were just almost empty, so they were just like big air balloons in, inside the hull. Right. Well, the braces and brackets, all out of wood, naturally, that hold the tanks are made to support the weight of the tanks from, uh, uh, from the outside holding the tanks in the boat. They're not made, I mean, holding the tanks up, you know, supporting them. They're not made to uh, uh, keep the tanks in the boat. In other words, those tanks started wanting to remove the deck and the cabin and everything else. Yeah. Just forcing it and then making the boat want to float and making it bounce like this. So I did that for a little bit, I don't know, a couple minutes, I guess, four minutes, five minutes, and I'm watching, watching, watching everything get washed off the boat. And uh, the cabin, the roof of the boat was still out the water. I was in 13, 14 foot of water or so, maybe a little more than that. And I was on the lowest part of the steel, the rigging that goes up in the air, watching this. And then she started to roll onto the port side. And when she rolled on her side, I had to crawl around and hurry up and jump around like a monkey in the rigging to get on the other side. So I did that and uh, stayed on the side of the boat for a while, and I noticed the hull starting to come apart, wanting to give. Mm -hmm. I said, nah, I don't want something to open up right here and go and grab me a foot or an ankle or something. So I climbed out on the skimmer frame on that side, and I was half or a little better than halfway down the frame when uh, the back deck started ripping off, and the back deck of the boat came off, popped up, and flipped over upside down. And the boat had went a little more on its side, so it's it's beating around inside the rigging and then it took a big lunge outside of that and a big old wave threw it straight at the frame that I was on. But it, I mean, it was a ways off, so it, it threw it towards me and it stopped a ways out, maybe 10 foot or so, 10, 15 foot. And I looked at that and I said, oh, no, you're not going to get me because this is a big old section of two by fours and beams yeah. and about a quarter inch of fiberglass on yeah. it, holding everything together. It was probably 15, 16 foot wide at the back of the boat uh, and about the same length. It was like a big square piece of deck. And it... Uh, I figured the next wave coming would have just threw it right into that frame. So I'd already pulled the card on my little life jacket and it had inflated and everything. And I, I put braced my foot on the frame and was about to shoot off of that frame into the water, you know, uh, to get away from that darn deck if the next wave slammed it into that frame. Sure. Because that would have just demolished it. And uh, right when I was about to do that, uh, another wave came from the side and just 
pushed it to the salt just a little bit, just enough bit to clear the end of the skimmer frame. And then it was there floating in the trough of the waves and just remained there off the end of this frame. Like it was there to dock waiting for me. Right. And I looked back at the boat and I said, well, I was waiting for the roof to come loose. I was going to jump on that. But you know what? A bird in hand. <laughs> they say bird in hand is better than a whole flock in the bushes. <laughs> so I said, you know what? I think I'm gonna jump on that deck. So I launched myself two or three good strokes and I was on top of the deck. <laughs> Sat up on there and I mean, it seemed like just as soon as I climbed on that deck, it just started floating away from the boat. Matter of, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, I was about 50 yards away. And I'm like, well, that's good. Yeah, I'm not that's... in danger of any of the junk or right. destruction that's happening over there. Get me? So now it's just a matter of time, of trying to pay attention and see if I'm going further offshore or inshore or what. Right. And all of this didn't. You still knew your direction. You know. Yeah. It's, it's oh, happening yeah. in the yeah. pitch black. I, I could tell. You could. I could see the locks. And that's man, twenty-four hours a day. Got lights on right, and all. Right. I could I could see fresh water by your locks, so I knew what direction that was. And also, we were having a, a south southwest wind, which would be yeah about like this. Right. And it was blowing like that without change. There was a few days, and I knew there was going to be a few more days. Yeah. So I figured well. Would have been nice to go right there, three miles to the locks, and, and there they got uh, your state, federal employees and stuff. I said I could have been right there, got me some water and whatnot, and got a ride to civilization again. Of course, but the way the wind was blowing and the current was running, that wasn't going to be possible because it was blowing you straight off. back here. It was blowing me back more towards Southwest Pass. Right. And I guess before... But I said, well, Southwest Pass is a better place, better chance of getting picked up. Because if you're just in the water, off the beach a ways, you have less chance of being picked up, spotted around Freshwater Bayou. Because there, they do have some uh, boat traffic in and out, and large boats. Right but not as many. You'll have maybe a couple of supply boats uh, every couple of few days. Yeah, yeah. A couple of pogey boats every once in a while, you know. You needed to get somewhere where there was more traffic. Uh, yeah, a little more traffic and different kind of traffic. Mm -hmm. Out of Southwest Pass of a million bay, you have a small crew boat that I know of that goes to a couple of particular wells right there in Tiger Shoals. He goes out there every morning. He comes in every midday, mid-afternoon. You have another large force crew crew boat that goes out, same thing. He's out there early in the morning. He's back middle of the afternoon. Uh, you have a bunch of other service boats that go out. This was uh, on a Thursday, Friday or Saturday. You have all kinds of uh, fishing, you know, private outboards and stuff running in and out the pass going fishing sure a lot of people chartering recreational and charters uh 
a lot of service boats go in and out there and you have all the majority of the traffic that's going out in the Gulf from Intracoastal City and the Port of Iberia and places in between and Port of a Million that basically all go out of Southwest Pass. Mm-hmm. Unless it's something that draws a lot of draft, like your larger supply boats when they load it down, or the pogey boats when they're going fishing to the west, those have to go through freshwater by your locks. But other than that, all the traffic goes out of Southwest Pass. Gotcha. A whole lot more traffic than, oh, and also a few shrimp boats. Well, yeah. Few of us old diehards. <laughs> <laughs> Not as many as once upon a time, but a few. So, and, and, so and, before the destruction of the boat, were you able to reach a radio to call no, for help? It no. was it was too late for all of when this. When I realized what happened, I went to try to unstick that frame with my winches, and it, it was too late. Everything I was, all, was everything looked, was already was already sinking. Yeah. The boat was settling. I ran back in the cabin to try to grab whatever. It's kind of hard to think, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I can. I and mean, when I turned around to get out, I went to knock the back door open, and a wave slammed it and threw me in the bathroom. Oh man! <laughs> Come out of there on 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 my hands and knees, and took off running and kind of threw a football block shoulder block into oh, yeah. that back door, and blew it open, and uh, shot out and got up on top of the roof. I guess it immediately showed you. How strong the oh, waves yeah, were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and you had to think Definitely. and act you, quick. There is uh, water in movement uh, when it's moving is one of the strongest forces on land. Right. I mean, I mean on 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 the face of the earth. Of put course. It that way, because uh, it's it's more dense. It grabs more, you know, everybody thinks, oh, tornado, you know, hurricane, oh, wind of 170 miles an hour or whatever. That 170 miles an hour is a lot of speed, but it has nothing compared to a wave that's moving 15, 20 miles an hour that is six or seven or eight foot tall. The comparison is demolish, not even close. Right. Can it, it, it can it demolish anything demolishes in its path? Everything in its path. You know, four foot concrete walls, sea walls like in Galveston. Right. They've been torn down by storms. Multiple times. Multiple They've times. They've had to rebuild right. m- rebuild right. many rebuild levees. Rebuild it many times. Uh, it just takes them apart and it doesn't take long. Wow. You know? So I did cross one thing that kind of uh surprised me i had seen that structure from a distance off the beach before never what, really got on it and crawled around on it like i did what structure was it but uh they have a, a i guess it's some type of coastal protection uh, uh project they did it's a bunch of these concrete blocks <laughs> and they're hollow and they're all fitted together and they have cables running both directions through them tying them together like a huge mat mm-hmm. and they have this mat laid like into the edge of the gulf and it comes up and i guess they have like a sand dune underneath or something it goes up and over that and then back down and into the marshways and i had to get on the top of that and make my way along that from start to finish 
and uh, that's how I got a lot of these bruises and cuts and all is uh, from working my way across that in the dark. Wow. Yeah, not really knowing what you're standing on. Right. And I, I decided to try to make my way off of it and get past it before daylight. That way I'd be past it and have a head start on the day following uh, while it wasn't too hot and the wind was blowing pretty hard. So the mosquitoes and horse flies and whatnot wouldn't eat me up. Oh. Uh, so when I tried, I went, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 yards down this thing. And man, I had fallen down from slipping on there so many times I was, had my shins busted up. I said, nah, the heck with this. I'm gonna wait till at least I can see. Yeah. I can quit falling on these damn blocks. So I went right up at the crest of it and laid on my back and I had the lid of my box I drug along with me and uh, fell asleep and said, well, shouldn't be but a couple more hours, you know, two, three hours, maybe a little longer before daylight, maybe. I think it was a little longer than that, though. I was being a little too hopeful. Uh, I said, I'm going to conserve my energy and go back to sleep right here. So I'm laying there on the top crest of that ridge and the water's breaking and the waves are hitting maybe four foot below me and went to sleep and the next thing I knew some water hit me in the face and I'm like what the heck and before I could truly awaken a larger wave came and just slapped the hell out of me and threw me off the top of that thing and about 20 30 foot out in the marsh wow and they had burnt that marsh so I don't know if you know what that's like, but uh, you end up with all these uh, rosos and marsh grass and stuff, and it leaves all the the root and the beginning of the stem. So it's like all poking up like this everywhere. Man, that stuff, that's a lot of the little cuts and scrapes and yeah. was from these stubbles that were there after they burnt that marsh. And I just got up on my hands and knees, Found my lid again in the dark, drug it back to the darn uh, brick wall, brick water, pushed it up the side of that, got back on top. Well, the waves kept slapping me around up there because by then it was blowing enough out the south and the water, the tide had come up enough where it was actually messing with me up on top of that brick water. Yeah, said, you weren't well, four feet said, above anymore. I, yeah, I can't stay here no more, so I got to get off this thing. Can't go out in the deep into the water itself. And we're gonna raid them rollers were breaking on top of those concrete blocks. And then it would so throw man, you back if, into if it. It starts cutting me flips on top of them blocks that are out in the water. I'm gonna damage myself. I said, Well, we just gonna have to make do. So yeah, I finished off the rest of it, and right about the time I got all the way off of it, well, daylight was breaking. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> yeah. It made it a lot easier if I could have seen. Yeah. But anyhow, I made it off of that. So it's still and, Thursday, but now it's uh, Thursday at uh, about well, 7 a.m. No, no, this would have been, let's see. I went down Thursday morning at 3, spent the whole day, the following night till about, well, daylight Friday morning. Gotcha. So you made it to the wall through that whole day on Thursday. 
Yeah, I made it to that wall by riding the back deck of my boat. Right. It went in. Uh, I noticed by dark Thursday afternoon that I was actually making a little progress towards the beach. I had set up the lid of my picking table, which I found floating underneath the piece of deck I was floating on, had drug it up on the deck and set it up to give me a little bit of shade and also to catch that wind. Because up until then, I noticed I was staying about three miles off the beach. It I wasn't, wasn't getting yeah. any further out, but I wasn't getting any farther in. Oh. Uh, what I had considered you. was the tide was probably going out, which was what was keeping me off of the beach was right. the tide going out. Uh, so that was up until dark or so. So then I sat a while in the dark and finally just went to sleep and left my little lid set up, propped up to where it was catching this wind. Well, it was blowing even harder that night and probably the tide started going back in. So, cause I, wasn't, I didn't think I would have hit the beach till maybe sometime in the middle of the next day or so. Well, I was there before daylight. <laughs> middle of that night, I was already on the beach. Woke up when, it, when that thing started hitting, hitting bottom. Right. And a combination of that lid I propped up and the fact that the tide was probably going in, I would imagine, pushed me on into shore way before I was expecting. So after that, it was a matter of making my way to Southwest Pass. I was hoping to hit within, you know, a couple of miles east or west of the pass itself. And then just walk my way to the, to the pass at the outer channel and uh, wait till someone picked me up. Yeah. Well, that didn't, uh, that didn't happen. I hit the beach way before. Way I west thought, of it, right? Yeah, way to the west. Um, I was probably four or five miles, maybe farther than that from the past. It's a little bit of an early, uh, early beach landing. Yeah, yeah. Stay tuned for part two of the George Romero interview coming in episode 28. Thank you for listening to Hold the Gravy. My name is Hunter Romero. See you next time.